0: So, uh, we are back in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Kind of setting it up. Here's some context if you haven't been with us. Jesus sits down amongst a crowd of people and he begins to preach a sermon. It's a sermon on what it looks like to be a follower of his, to be a kingdom citizen, if you will. And the sermon is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's the famous Sermon on the Mount. And he begins by introducing something brand new to his followers. To, Jesus, to, to follow Jesus, you need to be like him. That was, that was different. You need to be like him. The Beatitudes, which is at the beginning of chapter 5, communicate that following Jesus starts with the heart and not the hands. That's why he spends the first 12 or 13 verses there um, going in detail about what it looks like from the heart perspective to be like Jesus. Our being must always lead to our doing. Worship leads to obedience and it should never get the other way around because it can become very legalistic and a very set of rules, if you will, if we don't allow our worship to lead us to obedience. Jesus always starts with the heart. He always starts with the heart. This Sermon on the Mount is a very practical sermon, but he starts in chapter five with the heart. That's why last week Jesus said, you've heard it said that you should not murder. Do not kill. It's a command. That's an action. That's a doing. But I say, Jesus says, but I say, do not even be angry with someone because doing so is murder in your heart. Jesus, again, is going towards the being, not the doing. Jesus is going to communicate, or Jesus today is going to continue Um, to remind his audience of a command from God and then give us a deeper insight to the command's original intent. By the way, the intent was always don't be angry, don't murder someone from the heart. That was always the intent of God. Don't hate people. You love God and you love people. And so we're going to continue with that today. So just like last week, he starts by reminding his audience of an old law. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. So here Jesus addresses the seventh command of the Ten Commandments. His entire audience would be familiar with this command. This was nothing new to his audience. The command appears in Exodus twenty fourteen. It appears in Deuteronomy five eighteen. And the command is plain, and the command is simple. A married person is not to have sexual relationship with anyone other than his or her spouse. The scriptures take this command so seriously that the act of adultery is punishable by death. God, who is the creator of sex and marriage, also establishes wise and healthy boundaries for the things he creates to be best enjoyed. Anything outside of God's boundaries for sex and for marriage is a serious matter, and the Bible, in fact, calls it sin. Adultery is one of many sexual sins outside of God's boundaries for sex and in marriage. In Tim Talley's book entitled Six reasons why adultery is a very serious matter, he lists as number one, that adultery is a turning away or a breaking of a promise. He explains that adultery is turning away from the one to whom promises were made in the presence of witnesses. But most importantly, he says, it is the forsaking of promises made in the presence of God, and in a way, it's turning away from God himself. Adultery is serious, Adultery is sin to which his entire audience would agree. And so would we. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is where Jesus once again drops a devastating spiritual bomb on his audience. Nobody would disagree that adultery is sin. But Jesus carries the conversation to a place no one again saw coming, and yet it's a place that God always intended for the command to be. Once again, we are confronted with the undeniable truth that the heart of the matter is in fact the matter of the heart. Jesus is going for the heart of his people. Jesus is declaring that adultery is not limited to the act alone, but that lust is also adultery in God's eyes. Lust is the gazing and lingering look that objectifies another person to whom you are not in covenant relationship. Lust excites Sexual imaginations in the heart and you mentally engage in acts reserved for your spouse alone. Lust left undressed could be disastrous for the marriage. So why would we allow sin to go unaddressed in our lives? Can I just be honest with you? Because it's fun. For a season. Because it feels good. I don't want to convince you of that. We don't don't struggle with sin because it hurts. We struggle with sin because it it feeds something in us, and it feels good for a season. Hebrews 11.25 says that sin is a fleeting pleasure, but don't miss this. It is a pleasure. We don't see lust and adultery on the same level of seriousness, but every... Adulterous affair starts with lust in the heart And God sees no difference in the two They are both sin And as we're about to see Both of of them can Tragically lead to eternal destruction Because in the next two verses Jesus teaches us how serious He takes lust And how serious we should take it as well Verse 29 So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, and throw it away. Now, we're not going to start that ministry today, but my suspicions is nobody would sign up. So, why would Jesus say this? Because... The latter part of verse 29, he says, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wow. If Jesus is saying, if your eye is what's causing you to lust, it would be better for you to lose one eye temporarily than to lose your entire being in hell for eternity. Verse 30, and if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. This is how serious Jesus took sin. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So Jesus here in this context, in this text, uses two powerful and vivid illustrations. Okay? Okay? We laugh, but I was reading some commentaries this week of people who have literally taken this seriously and they have mutilated their body only to find out later in life that's not what Jesus was. It wasn't the heart of what Jesus was getting after. This is not a command to gouge out eyes and cut off hands. It's not. It's not a command here this morning. It's it's illustrations to get to a point. Here's the main idea. Sinful lust will lead you to destruction. It does not deliver what it promises. So, if necessary, Jesus says, you do whatever it takes. You take whatever steps necessary. You take whatever steps you must to take to deal with lust. Act decisively. Act immediately. Even if it's painful because this is not a situation for negotiations. And that's what we want to do with sin. That's what I want to do with sin. I want to negotiate. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. Don't negotiate with your eye or your hand. Gouge. Cut. Run. Run. This is how dangerous Jesus thinks lust is. The message here is not... Again, it's not a message of self-mutilation. That is not Jesus' point with this text. His point is remove anything from your life that is causing you to sin. Remove anything from your life that is causing you to stumble because eternity hangs in the balance, and it is better to limp into heaven than to run into hell. So we are to perform radical surgery on anything that would cause us to be cut off from eternal life. Again, Jesus is revealing that the real problem lies not in the eye or with the hand, but rather the real problem lies within the heart. So the key to spiritual victory over lust is not a mutilated eye or a cut-off hand. The key to spiritual victory over lust is a circumcised heart. The path to purity requires a pure heart and the mortification of our flesh. It is no coincidence that Jesus, in laying out the requirements to follow him, starts with, you must deny yourself. Why would we not want to deny ourselves? Sin is fun for a season. Sin is enjoyable, it's pleasurable for a season. But to live in Christ, we must die to ourselves. John Owen famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is no neutral ground here. Either we're slaying. Our flesh daily, we're slaying the sin in our lives, or sin is beginning to rot away at our souls. So what do we do? Well, I think the best advice comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. It's just four words. Verse, chapter 6, verse 18. Run from sexual sin. Don't walk. Don't negotiate. Run. And this, by the way, is the key to the Corinthian church. Because this church was a mess as we're learning, out, learning about in midweek services that start at 6.30 on Wednesday nights. Free plug. It's what we're learning. The Corinthian church is a mess. The church seemed to be running towards sin, not away from sin. The church was fighting. There was like fighting amongst each other. There was incest. They're sleeping with prostitutes. There's idolatry. They're getting together for communion services and they're getting drunk. Their their worship services are in chaos. Half of the church don't even believe there's going to be a resurrection. I'm not talking about Corinth as a culture. I'm talking about the church. And Paul starts his letter by reminding the church of who they are and what they have in Christ Jesus. Why? Because their behavior was the fruit of what they were presently believing. Paul knew that he had to address their actions, and if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know he does. But first he had to address their hearts. And somewhere along the line, the church had forgotten who they are in Christ. And they had forgotten what they have in Christ. And they were starting to act just like the culture again around them. Show me Christians involved in lustful behaviors. And I'll show you Christians that have forgotten who they are and what they have in Christ. Paul, again, says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. The rest of verse 22 says, instead, I think that's an important word here, because it's not enough just to say, hey, don't sin. You got to replace sin with mission, with purpose, right? Instead, he says, pursue righteous living. Pursue faithfulness. Pursue love. Pursue peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. And the principle is here, pursue purity or impurity will consume you. We have to pursue purity or the impurities around us will consume us. There is no neutral ground. You can't choose not to pursue purity and not be consumed by impurity. It doesn't work that way. There is the emptying of one and the filling of the other. We sin when we pursue something above God. That's why every sin we ever commit is rooted in idolatry. That's why sin is a spiritual issue more than a physical issue. And if we address, just address physical issues, we've, it's like cutting a weed at surface level, right? You can, you can take it down, and it's just going to keep coming back because we've never gotten to the heart of the matter. The root of the sin is idolatry, that we've placed something in a position above God in our lives, and there's idolatry there. and we're, we're worshiping, and we're seeking, and we're running after it rather than worshiping and seeking and running after God. So as Paul, over and over, reminds the church, whether it's the Corinth church or, or to Timothy, run from, Paul also, if it, through his letter, said you have to run to As we run from sin, we got to run to God. As we run from impurity, we have to run to purity. So here's how I want to spend the rest of my time. I would say end, but we got a few minutes. I want us to begin wrapping up by looking at three stories in Scripture. Two stories that reveal, I think, two choices that we have when it comes to lust. And then I want to end with a story that might give us some hope wherever we're at on our journey this morning. The first story is the story of, of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is a, is a fun story in the Old Testament, very interesting. Lots of things happen. Didn't help himself. You know, he was, he was probably dad's favorite, and he got that coat of, you know, it's just, it's a crazy story, and, and, and he, he didn't hide it. He'd go around his older brothers, going, I, I guess I'm dad's favorite. Look what I'm wearing, you know. A, and so his brothers decided one day they're going to sell him into slavery. They're going to get rid of him, all right? And so we pick up the story in Genesis 39, verse 1 says, When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Islamite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of this Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. Of course it would please Potiphar because if he's blessing Joseph and Joseph is working in Potiphar's home, Potiphar's home is being blessed. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. What a and there's a sermon right there, I believe. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and his livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about anything except what kind of food to eat. What a life, right? You put this guy in charge, God blesses everything he does, and all you got to worry about is what's for lunch? And as you're eating lunch, what am I having for dinner? Like, Life's good. Now, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, so kind of picture me. And and, I'm sorry, that was wrong. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing for me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. It would be a wicked thing against Potiphar, and it would be a great sin against God. And she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept, uh, this this is important, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. That was probably for his sake more than hers. One day, however, no one else was around, and he went in to do his work. And she came, and she grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, come and sleep with me. And Joseph tore himself away. And he left his cloak in her hand and he ran from the house. Jesus in Matthew 5, whatever it takes. If that means running out of the house naked, run. The price Joseph would pay for his faithfulness would be high but it's not as high of a price that David would pay for his unfaithfulness. Because there's another story, it's found in Second Samuel chapter 11, and it goes like this. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, and they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem, Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and he was walking on the roof of the palace and he looked out over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty. Imagine my wife. He noticed an uh, unusual beauty of this woman and she was taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, notice the progression in this story. It's quite easy to spot. He sees Bathsheba. Then he inquires of Bathsheba, and thirdly, he takes. I only mention that because it sounds very familiar to the deception in the garden. David saw, he inquired, he took. Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good and looked delicious. Then they began to ask, well, did God really say? And, and they had this little dialogue with the serpents, right? They looked. They saw that the fruit was good. They wanted the fruit. They took the fruit. And they ate. But the part of that story that I want us to look at for just 30 seconds or so is notice that the passage said that this was the time when kings led their armies into battle. This, this was the time when kings led their armies into Into battle, David should not even should not have even been on that roof that afternoon. He should have been doing what kings do, leading his army into battle. But he decided to stay behind, and I think there is a good principle here for us Christians. Hear this: This is so true of me, maybe you. Christians most often sin when they are not doing what they should be doing, and they're somewhere they should not be. Christians most often sin when they are not doing what they should be doing. That was the problem with the Corinthian church. Another plug. Come back midweek, right? No, listen. How do you have time for fighting and all of this other stuff if you're on mission? Together as a church, changing the city of Corinth. They're not doing that. They had lost their identity as missionaries. They're no longer being sent out, being influential. Melissa, one of the verses that she read from Psalm says, it is our job to tell the world the glories of God. They quit doing that. And when we quit doing what God has called us to do, we start doing things that God has called us out from doing. We don't have time to sin if we're on mission for God. But when we start standing around, sitting around, we become idle. We get into trouble. Christians most often sin when we're not doing what we should be doing and when we're somewhere that we should not be. So those two stories kind of share the two Choices we have when it comes to lust, when it comes to adultery, we can either run away from or we can run to. But they're not very helpful this morning if you need hope. So what do you do if right now you're in the middle of sexual sin in your life? Is there any hope for us? So I want to end with one more story. It's out of the Gospels, John chapter 8. Jesus was teaching in the temple, and it says in verse, starting in verse 3, when he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They caught her. This isn't a he said, she said. She was caught in the very act. And they put her in front of the crowd, and here's what they said. "Teacher." This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we are to stone her, that this woman is to die right here, right now. Jesus, what do you say? Now, they were trying to trap him, the scriptures say. They're trying to get him to say something that they could use against him. But Jesus stoops down and he begins writing in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. He does this twice. It's kind of a, a weird moment here. Like, they're Wanting an answer from Jesus, and he's he's drawing something like he's doodling in the dirt. And it says that they kept demanding an answer. So it, uh, this probably went on for a while. Tell us what should the law says? She dies. What do you say? Keeps writing. The law says she dies. What they, they just kept demanding. So he stood up and he said, "All right, but let the one here who has never sinned throw the first stone." And then he went back down and started playing the dirt again. The scripture says, "That would have been such a cool moment, right?" He gets up and goes, "All right, killer, you without sin, throw the first stone." <laughs> so weird. Here is what it says. When his accusers heard this, they began slipping away one by one, dropping the rocks, one by one, walking away, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman, let's just be fair, this adulterous woman. Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. No, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. the only one who had the authority to condemn her in that moment, forgave her. If Jesus was here today, he would remind us of the seriousness of the sin of lust and adultery. He would remind us that it is a condemnable sin. But then he would remind us that there is grace And there is forgiveness for those who would receive it. The woman came before Jesus guilty, and she walked away forgiven, and she had done nothing different. The woman came before Jesus guilty, and she walked away forgiven. The woman deserved death for her sin. Look at me. So do we. the wages, this is what Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of Jesus, our sin does not need to define or condemn us. There is forgiveness for our every sin through Jesus Christ. Psalm 130. Look at this verse. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, oh Lord, could ever survive? None of us. Do you know what the psalmist Psalmist is saying? He's saying every single one of us, if we were drugged into the presence of Jesus and under the law had to stand before Jesus, none of us could stand. Every one of us would be stoned to death. Who could survive? Not me, not you, but the next four words from the psalmist's mouth is this, but you offer forgiveness. Daniel 9, 9, but the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. 1 John nine. but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. We're not here today to pretend we don't have wickedness. We're just here today to say if we will confess them to Jesus, he will forgive us of those. That's your hope. That is the only hope we have. God's grace is sufficient to cover a multitude of our sins, not so that we have license to go on sinning more. God forbid, Paul says. But rather, it is an invite for us to repent and to turn away from our sins and sin no more. And when we sin more, we repent, and we turn away from our sin, and we sin no more. And when we sin more, we repent and we turn from our sin. We just keep resting in the finished work of Jesus. We keep resting in the forgiveness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us deserves to be brought before the judge and condemned it to death. But there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is life. And his name is Jesus. We rest in his finished work. We rest in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. We rest in his perfect life lived on our behalf. We rest in his gruesome death on our behalf. And we rest in the glorious resurrection on our behalf. We rest in that finished work, but we leave here today sober-minded with this last thought from Hebrews 13:4: Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. So we leave here sober minded that God will still discipline and judge lust and adultery. So, church, we run. We run. We don't pretend like we don't struggle. We run. We don't pretend like it's never been a part of our lives because you're lying. We run. we run. We run. We ask God to show us. The seriousness of our sin. We ask God to break our hearts for the sin that we have taken so lightly. And we run away from lust. We run away from adultery. And we run away from every sexual sin that comes against us. But we run to the finished work of Jesus. And there we rest. Because in Him we are forgiven. Lord, we, we read scripture today where we're reminded of how serious you take sin. Gouging eyes, cutting of hands, removing anything in our lives that's a stumbling block. God, we need to feel such a deep conviction of, of areas in our lives that we have quit feeling the weight or the seriousness of our sin. Everybody struggles with it. It's not an excuse. It just feels right. Is not, not a license to keep running towards. So would you help us? God, would you once again remind us of who we are and what we have in you? Oh God, we've already studied that we We need to seek after. We need to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And God, we've already read that we need to be mournful. God, perhaps we just need to be broken again over our sin. That we've sinned against you. And yet you gave us Jesus. And in him we find forgiveness. So would you help us run away from sin and run to you? pursue purity, and to remove the impurities. In the Spirit of God, would you begin to reveal whatever those triggers are in our life that that draws us to. God, if it's something that we do see with our eyes, or if it's something we do touch with our hands, or if it's a place we do go with our feet, God, that we not mutilate ourselves, but we just cut off those, those things from our lives. If we need to throw the TVs out, we throw the TVs out. If there's relationships that need to sever, we sever God, if there's jobs that need to be quit and move on, it's worth it for the sake of not dishonoring you, running away from and running to you. So whatever it costs us, God, would you give us the strength to do it so that we can pursue holiness and pursue godliness? Because that's what this whole sermon is about, what it looks like to be more like you. God, we cannot run towards sin and be like you. We're sinners. But God, give us strength daily in your spirit to keep running from, running from, running to you. And we will rest in your forgiveness and your grace as we run. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.